the matter of the people of the state of California versus Orenthal James Simpson, case number BA09. And so, my fellow Americans, ask not what your country can do for you. Boom, and, and we're back on a presu- presumably cold um, Wednesday at this point. You know, I hope I don't have to like release this after you've been frozen to death. So take care of yourself. I have, I actually went and got plenty of firewood. Good. Because in Texas, the only shirt assurance is caveman meat. Yeah. So, um, sweet. Uh, so I'm going to go ahead and kick things off, Taylor, with my topic, which is going to be a little weird for usual. Like, it's not going to be like the normal thing. So, normal. what is normal? What even is normal? I can't wait. So, I'm going to have you guess. Oh, God, I can't wait. What do the CIA, Bill Clinton, and the Mar- Mariana Trench have in common? They're all deep and dark. And there's things in there that we don't know what they are. <laughs> it always circles back to Epstein's list. Um, <laughs> exactly. <laughs> so, no, no. Um, I, uh, I saw a meme on Instagram recently, and it featured this specific aircraft that I think we've probably all seen, and but like probably don't even really think about very much anymore. And it led me down a rabbit hole where I found like a ton of fascinating info, and I thought it would be a pretty good topic for discussion here. So I'm going to be discussing the conception, career, and the doomed-to-fail demise of the legendary aircraft, the SR-71, also known as Blackbird. You know what that is? Cool. No, that's very exciting. You look very excited too. So I feel excited that you're excited. It is, oh God, like, I feel like every kid growing up, like, looked at posts of this thing was like, I want to be in that thing one day. Yeah, 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 yeah. I'm totally sure. It looks so cool. Um, So I broke this down to several components. Like, the first piece of it, the first act is going to be the conception. So I'm going down. We're going going to take some wild turns here, Taylor. Just stick with me, okay? I'm excited to get to the Mariana Trench because that feels like the opposite of where you want to be if you're in a plane. That is the very last thing we're going to cover. So I'm going to keep the nail biters here until we're done. <laughs> okay. So you're forced to listen to me. I can't wait. So I'm going to start the topic of the conception of the Blackbird by starting with the U.S. intelligence community as a whole. So the further you dig into funding and budgets for the intelligence community, the more you realize how entirely opaque the whole process is and how little is exposed to the public. Mm-hmm. I have yet to find a reliable source on how budgets actually work with the 18 agencies that comprise the U.S. intelligence community. Also, that blew me yeah. away, 18 agencies. That's literally what the totality of what's called the IC, the intelligence community in the United States, composed of. I think it mostly CIA, FBI, NSA. Right. But, like, there's... Uh, 15 others 15 others yeah um whoa there was i was just uh, to 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 interrupt we were watching family guy yesterday or the other day and they talk about harvard and they're like harvard has you know illustrious alumni and then they show um ted cruz jared kushner and steve bannon and then they show the unabomber and then they pause and they go we apologize to ted kaczynski for putting you in that group (laughs) but i was telling juan how like Harvard ruined Ted Kaczynski because yeah, of LSD. CIA. Yeah. They broke his brain. Yeah. Um, well, actually, I think the CIA commissioned Harvard. Harvard consented to doing it. So I don't I don't know. I don't know yeah. who's more complicit there. But someone is though. 
So I started thinking of this. So basically, the whole this is all pretty common knowledge. So the way that the federal government budget works is that agencies put together their budgets and they submit it to Congress, and Congress has to basically rubber stamp it, and they say, "Yep, this funding is appropriated," and mm-hmm. things keep keep running. It is way more complicated than that. Like what yeah. I learned is that actually it's a three year process. So from when you submit a budget to Congress until those funds are actually use it takes mm-hmm. about three years so like the process for the money that is allocated this year started in 2022 mm-hmm. like that's how long of a, of a cycle that is but what's really interesting and something that i cannot figure out is how money for the community intelligence community gets allocated I, I found this like Harvard research paper on it, and it also was basically just citing the same other stats and resources I found everywhere else. But one thing that I noticed is that the more I dig into this, like every now and then we'll do a topic, and I can feel my own personal like political affiliations kind of moving mm-hmm. and shifting underneath me. And that's kind of what I thought when I when I dug deeper into this, because to get to the bottom of how black budgets are spent you back your way into it by looking at how overall budgets were spent. Mm-hmm. So I, I pulled up this stat, which like blew me away. So in 2022, the federal government budgeted $4.1 trillion for the year 2023, so last year, for mm-hmm. mandatory spending. Of that, of the $4.1 trillion, 82% or $3.4 trillion could be addressed by just fixing three societal problems we have how health insurance works, yeah. our ability to save money for retirement and student mm-hmm. loans. Oh, oh, really? That's it. That's it. Like those three things. So again, like I'm not advocating for this, but by comparison, all we ever talk about like societally is how much we spend on our military. And we spend a ton. We spend more than the next, like I forgot what it was. It was like 20, 30 countries combined or something. Mm-hmm. Um, it is we spent five times more addressing those three issues but than we do in our military. And it's not fixing it. Because because if you look at it, you're like, okay, so let me get this straight. So because there's no cap and limit to how companies can how, how much it costs to get basic medical procedures done, and because of a convoluted insurance system that creates all this middleman process mm-hmm. in the middle there. We blow up our costs on that front, which means we all end up paying for it through tax dollars that we then tax to pay for the retirement of elders out of our own resources, which is going to go bankrupt anyways. Mm-hmm. It's just like, it's like, it's so crazy. It's like, it's like just literally just fix the healthcare problem. It means people can save their own money for retirement. Right. It's just like, and, 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 and then you get into like schools and you're like, wait, so this turned into a business when? This like literally mm-hmm. like fifty thousand dollars a a year for a fucking undergrad degree. It's like crazy. Like mm-hmm. so. Anyways, I went. No, through, agree. To, agree to agree on all those things. I went through a whole feelings thing with this. I'm very excited for in the next ten minutes when like the CIA bursts into your house. So I know, right? Bad. The amount of googling I did on this, I was like, "Yep, that's being tracked. That's being tracked. That got <laughs> tracked. That keystroke was tracked." <laughs> like just literally. The men in black are going to show up. It's going to be very exciting. 100%. 100%. So the intelligence community's funding falls under a single umbrella, um, which 
so basically all 18 agencies it's intelligence community that's the budget that's where the mm-hmm. budget goes so by all accounts the rough approximation of how much was budgeted for the entire intelligence community these 18 agencies was 90 billion dollars um so basically but for this for this year you were saying for last year yeah, it was two years ago, but it was for last year. So if anybody looks into this, like I know that there's two categories here. There's military intelligence programs as national intelligence programs. I'm bucketing them all into one. The military mm-hmm. intelligence is significantly lower than the national intelligence. But anyways, like that's I just know that if you look this status up, I'm just including them onto one. Mm-hmm. Um, this is part of our defense spending and is unique from the rest of the budget process part because budgets aren't line itemed here. So the mm. obvious reason why that is, is because they need the ability to create what's called black budgets, which is off the book spending that not even Congress has access to. So like it is very, very like top secret national intelligence stuff. Um, mm-hmm. And and that's the point of it. The point of it is to be able to kind of create and run and operate um, classified projects. So and I'm sure that I've been propagandized to be like, yeah, of course. What do you mean? Like I've watched a lot of like, movies and like tv shows where i'm like of course they need a black budget you know but yeah like, well they, i mean like here's the thing I, I i would say that after learning what i've learned here i'm like yeah we do cool. <laughs> we actually tangibly do um because in, in this project is a really good case case study of why that is and this is the only one that we really like i mean sure we know of a lot of them now but like i don't know what's being worked on right now like what's being worked on right now might be like something we'll never we won't even know in our lifetime right so um so it was from this budget, what's called the Black Budget, that the Air Force and the CIA joined forces because they're part of the intelligence community. Mm-hmm. Um, they joined forces to plan the creation of a plane, which at the time was codenamed Archangel, which is rad. Just absolutely That's rad. <laughs> so a little bit of background, a little bit of history on this. So in 1956, the U.S. created a spy plane called the U-2. It was built mm-hmm. to fly incredibly high and take incredibly high-quality pictures of the train below. During the height of the Cold War on May 1st, 1960, one of these planes was flying over the Soviet Union when it was shot down by a surface-to-air missile. The This was basically a, an incredibly huge PR disaster for the United mm-hmm. States. And mm-hmm. there was, on one account, I remember I read... Um, Eisenhower told his secretary that he was ready to quit his job. Like he was just like so ashamed and embarrassed because at this time, when Khrushchev was essentially the grace that the Soviets gave America was Alan Dulles, the head of the CIA, probably did this on his own and didn't even tell the president. So like, let's yeah. not just throw everything out as far as our negotiations on a peace treaty here. Because he's a baddie, so, right? Dulles, yeah, Dulles was definitely a baddie. Yeah. Um, so again, huge disaster for the U.S. and Eisenhower and Khrushchev agree that the U.S. will never fly spy planes over the Soviet Union again. That was kind of the agreement. Like, we're going to put an ironclad uh, treaty in place. It's not going to happen again. So knowing this, obviously, Alan Dulles was like, cool, we have a problem. Now we need a plane that just can't get can't ever be caught. (laughs) Yeah, 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 of course. I was like, of course, they didn't really do that. Yeah, of course not. Like the, pro- the problem was that we can't do this. It was like, okay, now we just got to figure out how not to, do- not to get caught doing this again. So they approached the recipient of a ton of Black Project money um, contracting Lockheed Martin to develop and build such an aircraft. So in 
1962, they signed a contract to build six planes that at the time had a designation and still do of SR-71. That's what I've been referring to as Blackbird. So SR-71, Blackbird, same thing. I see it. The basic requirements were threefold. Had to fly super high, had to fly super fast, and it had to stay completely under wraps. That's it. That was the the idea. So Lockheed Martin had a division focused entirely on building projects like this. It's called Skunk Works, which is now like a euphemism used by any sort of company that has like a, like an in-house specialty projects thing. But it all originally have Lockheed Martin. Yeah, exactly. Mm-hmm. And basically, like if you look at the list of like the projects Skunk Works has worked on, it's like every insane plane that has ever existed. Mm-hmm. So, for example, any time you hear reports out of something happening or someone sp- c- citing something out of um, Area 51 – it's probably a skunk works plane. Like mm-hmm. to, to that point, even the initial test flights done for the SR-71, they were all done at Area 51 nice. for context. So so creating a plane that can fly high and fast enough to basically outperform any other plane or missile for that matter in the world was a pretty tall order. And what it essentially means is they had to basically invent all new processes and technologies and manufacturing capabilities all the way from the ground up. I'll go through what it takes to basically operate this thing later on, but it's crazy the amount of work they had to go into this. They had to basically figure out how a new way for engines to work, for fuel to be stored, how to ensure survivability, a whole host of other stuff that we'll we'll, we'll go into the details of. Have you looked Have you looked this plane up before, Taylor? I'm, you know I'm looking at I'm looking at it right now. It looks silly. Describe it. It's like got like a big front part and then it has like little engines and wings on the back but it's like the, the front part is very like oblong and big right yes yeah i think it looks silly it does look like a bird it doesn't not look like a bird taylor it looks more you, like a bird than other planes taylor you say silly i say incredibly badass okay, cool. um yes I mean, let's figure out whoever wants please write in let's get we'll, we'll do a poll is the, is it silly or badass we'll we'll see what, what the interwebs have to say i do know but, that we have a, a military pilot who is a listener so yeah, please. If you've ever even seen one of these things in person, like I would love to know. Yeah. Um, so basically, the reason it looks the way it looks isn't because it they were trying to make it look badass. Like the goal is this thing for, for sure. it to never be seen. Like literally the entire objective was never be seen. And so that's why it's designed the way that it's designed. So I'm going to describe it a little bit. So uh, the front of the plane, to your point, it's like a boom. It comes to a point like a fighter jet does, but then it sweeps Mm -hmm. down really rapidly on the edges. And from the top or the bottom, it kind of looks almost like it's flat, the central fuselage part of it. And that's all done because of its stealth capability. So it was designed so that it wouldn't be readable as a plane on um, traditional radar. It would leave a radar signature. So the wings um, and the engines are integrated into the wings and they have this cone-like structure at the very, very front of it, which is entirely a design component of how the engine was supposed to work to get it up to its max speed, which we're going to get into here in a second. Okay. So what the plane was capable of doing, no plane, no, sorry, no manned plane ever since has matched it. So... In 1964, they built a thing that even today we have not tried to replicate. So it was capable of flying in excess of Mach 3.2, mm-hmm. which is 2,500 miles per hour. Mm-hmm. So 
the 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 in excess part was in short bursts. Some have um, reported claims of three point five, but it would sustain flight at three point two, which is the fastest you can go. Or, well, the fastest a man plane would be able to go. Did and, you watch Top Gun too? You mean Maverick or yeah? Yes, it's great. It's great. Continue. But he, he yeah, flies it all... at a Mach a lot. He flies at a Mach a lot. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the thing. Like, like these speeds are not that. I mean, this speed is atypical, but flying incredibly fast on a, one of those jet planes is not. Um, mm-hmm. The more critical part of its functionality had to do with the fact that its service ceiling was eighty thousand to eighty-five thousand feet high, which is like super high, <laughs> like super, yeah. super duper high. Um, yeah. When when you look at pictures of people in the cockpit of this thing, they look like they're in outer space. They don't even look like they're flying a plane. hundred percent. I see that for sure. So the reason they had to design it this way was twofold. One is because no other plane outside of what's um, called the, it's called a zoom ascent or something, something like those lights. No other plane can actually sustainably fly at this elevation. Mm-hmm. A plane could occasionally get up there, but it would just be shooting straight up and then it would lose all lift and just fall back down. So occasionally they were able to lock targets on this thing in the, in the, later operational history but they're never able to get close enough to actually do anything about it but the other more stupid... important part you i'm start. so sorry i know you're on a roll but i have a stupid question is this pre pre-satellites or like during satellites because aren't satellites like above this so wouldn't that not matter anymore i'm gonna get to that okay yes that is a really good point um, you, thank you thank you for understanding my very scientific question no no i you're we're, we're talking about this for a lot for okay. a, a while later on right. um so the other part of it had to do with um, the speed. So the speed was also meant to outrun missiles. So even if even if there was a surface-to-air missile launched this thing, it could outpace a missile. So that's entirely how it was supposed to run. Also, the idea was that given its service ceiling, by the time a missile actually got high enough to reach it, it would then need to accelerate faster. And by that point, it would have exhausted all propulsion. Mm-hmm. So that was the idea. Uh, the name, the SR designation of it stands for strategic reconnaissance. The purpose of this plane was to fly up over or to the side of any targets on the ground to take incredibly high quality, high resolution pictures. All this be stored in the plane because this is 1964. And right. once the plane lands, they would remove uh, the components and then send it over to the CIA to analyze the data, interpret it, and then run it up the ladder, essentially. So, like I said, a lot of stuff around building this thing had to be unique. I'm going to touch on just a few of them. There's a ton that we could be talking about, but we don't we don't have forever. So I'm going to touch on a few of the more interesting things. One was that flying at this speed and created a tremendous amount of resistance in the air, which caused a tremendous amount of heat to be built up. So it was determined early on that they couldn't build this out of steel or any traditional materials that you would use for airframe construction. They would have to use titanium. The problem was that the ore they would need to use for the titanium was in short supply in the U.S., but was an incredibly high supply in the Soviet Union, which is who they literally were trying to build this plane against. Yeah. So the CIA did what the CIA does exceptionally well, and they basically set up a ton of little shell companies across the entire country or the entire world and ordered in small batches the titanium they would need to construct the plane so they wouldn't Mm -hmm. raise any alarms or anything. Uh, mm-hmm. And it took years. It took years, like during the design phase. Like, I mean, they didn't even know if they were going to do this, but they still design. I mean, man, ingenuity. The ingenuity here is crazy. <laughs> like the I think we talked about that. Do. Something 
we talked about something with that, like, but the opposite way, we're like, oh, it was helium. It was how in the U.S. we had all the helium and we wouldn't give it to Germany to make their blimps. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So wild. Also, because um, ev because objects that don't melt in heat expand in heat, the body paneling of the plane was loose. It was loose fitting. So when it was on the ground, it wasn't actually fully secured as a as one cohesive structure. It would have to reach Mach 3.2, its cruising speed, for all the pieces to actually come together and fit. Where did I hear that about regular planes? Someone just told me that like planes are built on a moving platform because they're meant to be moving. Well, I, I mean, I'm sure they are. I'm sure all of them are. Like, I know that planes do. Um, it's like subs, right? They used to talk about how people in subs they would tie a string from one side of the sub to the other side of the sub on the inside, and then mm -hmm. as you go further down, you can see how much the string sags because the entire body is sh shifting and moving. Planes, mm. I'm sure, do the exact same thing. Yeah. So yeah, that's that's the piece about how the construction side of it was. One interesting quirk about the plane was that the fuel of, for the plane was all housed in the airframe itself. It was like circulating around the plane, which a lot of planes do this. Most of the time it's just in the wings, but in this plane it had to be kind of all around because it needed a ton of fuel and its wings weren't even that long. They were delta wings, mm -hmm. which was like a little bit sloped. So the problem with that is because the, um, the skin of the plane is loose fitting, and because it expands and contracts so much, this thing would just constantly leak fuel when it was on the ground. Because right, right, right. There's only so many times you could compress and come back and the fuel cell wouldn't shatter. And so right. basically maintenance workers devised a count of how many drops a minute were okay versus now we have to actually replace all this paneling, replace a the problem. air cell, the fuel cells and everything. Yeah. So the other thing that was unique about this was just the survivability of it. So like, again, if you look at pictures, you think you're looking at an astronaut, not a pilot inside. Of yeah, the yeah, yeah. The reason was that they couldn't pressurize the cabin sufficiently at this height. So what I read was that at this, at the, at the cruising altitude of 85,000 feet, the best they could really hope for was to, um, was to pressurize it to the equivalent of 10 to 25,000 feet, which you'd still pass out at. <laughs> But you're still not right. getting any oxygen at that, at that level. And so what they had to do was create a pressure suit. So they're inside a pressurized suit that where all their life support is dependent on this suit itself, not the cabin that you're actually inside of. Um, and the other part of it, the other reason why they had to do this was in the event of a ejection event, which happened a lot, in the uh -huh. event of an ejection, given the speed and the altitude, A, you die from just the fall because you'd be without oxygen for so long in, in, a, in a descent. But the other part of it was that if you were to inject the heat, your body would experience would be about 450 degrees. That's how hot it would be upon ejection. So there was no time to fumble for Wait, oxygen why, or mass or anything. Why would it be hot when it's cold up there? Because of the speed? Because of the speed. Yeah. Because So what they were saying was that the body itself, would heat up to around a thousand degrees Fahrenheit and mm. the glass that, that was in front of the pilot would be somewhere in the 250 to 350 range. Wow. So it gets crazy, crazy hot because of the speed of the resistance. So going into a bit of, of the operational history. So the SR-71 was operational until it's, um, well, there's going to be two retirements. Its first retirement uh, happened 24 years after it went to active service. 
And during that time, it was used in Vietnam, Israel, Lebanon, and obviously the Soviet Union. Basically, any global conflict the U.S. had any sort of interest in. The stories around this and the numbers that are thrown around of like some of the missions that this thing went on are kind of inconceivable. So one of the quirks of the SR-71 was that it would take off with its um, fuel cells half full. The okay. idea being that the lighter it is, the better. Um, and so it would take off also leaking fuel anyways. So why waste right. on the ground? So take off. Its first stop upon takeoff was meeting up with a, a mid-air refueling tanker. And it would <laughs> refuel. Its very first thing was to stop and refuel. So it would do that, and then it would accelerate to full speed. So like its actual cruising speed of 3.2, Mach 3.2. And it could only do this for about 90 minutes. So about 90 minutes after cruising at this, altitude, at this speed, it would have to start looking for another tanker, which it would find, refuel, and then keep going. It was just like a constant thing. It had to keep being refueled midair. So it'd be like, wow, the stories that you'd hear about this from some of the pilots um, that flew in it were, you know, they would take off from Sacramento and they would basically do a loop around half the country where they would go from Sacramento up to Seattle, turn back around, go over Albuquerque, um, down to San Diego, back to Sacramento, and they would refuel twice. It'll be like a two hour trip to do this whole thing. Wow. There was one pilot, there was a story I read about one pilot who... He had dinner with his wife and kids at home. Everybody went to, went to sleep. He goes to the airbase. He suits up. He flies to the North Pole where the CIA wanted photos to ascertain whether the Soviet Union was planting listening devices mm-hmm. under the ice sheet to track the, our nuclear submarines. And then he flew back home, and it was just a couple of hours, and he went to bed. It was just That's like, some, like, some shit there. Yeah. Yeah. And it, and it actually happened on Christmas Eve. Did it really? That's delightful. Yeah. Um. I also remember like watching like one of the last manned space missions that went up, like they do a thing where at some point they have like one more, um, what should I call it? like one more chance to, to bail. And th- if they did that, they'd land in Dublin, you know, what like, you Oh, Oh, because they like go they're so uh, high. But it, yeah. But it's like six minutes. So like six minutes after leaving Florida, they could technically land in Dublin, but because so they went crazy. up, you know, so crazy. Yeah. So fun. Similar to this, like this guy, the, one of the stories that I read, the one with the guy was going to Albuquerque, doing doing like a loop around 50% of the country, basically, in two hours. He was mm-hmm. talking about how when he was in Albuquerque, um, he could see downtown LA on one side and Denver and the Rocky Mountains on the other side. No way. That's cool. <laughs> like, so cool. Yeah. Um, and it was also actually, one interesting uh, mission that went on was that it actually was used to track the route that D.B. Cooper went on and took pictures underneath Ooh. it to figure out where he might have ditched. Um, it didn't work. They ran five missions trying to do this, and it didn't work because of cloud coverage um, in the Pacific oh, Northwest. So That's what they want you to think. That's what they want you to think. They did find his body. It's me. I'm D.B. Cooper. <gasps> Strange reveal. Um, That's weird. So... Finding tangible mission history on this thing is really, really hard because I'm sure all that is classified. The stuff you know is the stuff that pilots are talking about on YouTube and some grains of detail come out when you look at like the um, the planes that have been downed because then, mm-hmm. then you know, okay, so one was down in the North China Sea. We know that like something happened in the engine and then it, you know, like, the details are s- scarce, um, mm-hmm. but 
Uh, so there's not a ton of detail around this. And so that's part of the reason why it went into its first premature retirement was because nobody really knew what it did. <laughs> they just knew we spent mm-hmm. a ton of money on this thing. And like it looks cool and it goes high, but like. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And to your point, satellites, which I'm going to get to in more okay. detail here. So the military was trying to find places to cut its budget, but also it had a shinier, newer toy that it was trying to fund, which is the B-2 bomber, more commonly known as the Stealth. Mm-hmm. So at that point, kind of like you mentioned before, global satellite coverage was becoming more pervasive and mm-hmm. it was definitely more pervasive than it was when the SR-71 was initially in development. So people in power had this misconception on the cost of maintaining the program and how valuable the program actually was in light of other competing interests. So because of how secret it was and because the planes, uh, planes like this get priced out based on how many, how much it costs to operate them on an hourly basis, mm-hmm. there was an assumption that this fleet costs about $700 million to operate a year, mm-hmm. which comes out to about $85,000 per flight hour. But really, it was closer to $300 million. It was flying a lot more than people actually knew because it was secret. Mm-hmm. So, so you don't know that those details. So you think it's more right. expensive than it actually was. Also, $300 million in the scheme of the U.S. budget is like I know. a quarter to you and me. Um, yeah. <laughs> so in late 1989, the plane was officially retired just short of um, being involved in Operation Desert Storm which didn't matter really because the U.S. won so so decisively, but it was noted because General Schwarzkopf came out saying like, hey, we actually could have used this plane. Like it would have been really, really helpful to know how people were moving and how to position people. Mm-hmm. Um, and that would self-perpetuate itself because in 1993, that's when really things started popping off like a lot more in the Middle East and mm-hmm. with the war in Bosnia. And so the military requested that the that Congress allocate budget to reactivate several of these SR-71s. So their argument on doing so was that typically with a satellite, to reposition a satellite to a specific point can take up to 24 hours to do. And the military was looking at this and saying, like, we can get from here, we can get from a, a military base in the U.S. to over Russia, over Bosnia, over Lebanon, in like, two hours yeah totally so time was kind of of the essence here also Mm -hmm. because the plane can keep doing the same pass over and over again it was able to quickly determine the motion of things so what they were talking about was in bosnia they were trying to determine where um weapons were being transported to Mm -hmm. but a satellite Mm -hmm. hits that spot and then passes and then hits it again and then again so it doesn't show you the real-time progression of things the way yeah Mm-hmm. So, so for a period of time, a few of them did return into active service, and that was until 1997, when Bill Clinton famously used a power that he thought he had, which he did not, called the line item veto. So he struck the SR-71 budget as a line item from the budget for 94, 98, and that went up to the Supreme Court, which the Supreme Court deemed was um, not a power the president actually has. Hmm. God, can, can you imagine how quaint that was, Taylor? Like, that's what we were fighting about as a country. Was like, does the president have the power to do a line item veto? That's, we were so cute back then. When the president, like, you know, could read. And, like, <laughs> could read. <laughs> do stuff. Um, yeah, what a lovely what a lovely time to be alive. Lovely time. Um, 
Regardless, at that point, it became clear that there was so much resistance. Now the president was getting involved on this project that a second retirement was ultimately inevitable. And that's what happened. So in 1998, they went into permanent retirement status and now are basically just exhibited in museums. That's all they well, do. I um, feel like that's fine. They probably have new ones and better ones. So, I don't want to ride in a plane from 1963. Do you? Is that whatever? So, well, the thing is, it's not that they have, well, we, you wouldn't be riding in that anymore. So there is an SR-72 in development. Um, mm -hmm. And what that is, is is a drone. Like everything's going to yes, drone. Because, you're right. because you, you don't have to worry about like human survivability at all, um, which is great. <laughs> it helps mm -hmm. a lot. Um, and so that Lockheed Scott work is working on currently. And um, that is kind of the next stage of um, unmanned aircraft. So, wow. Some fun facts and an interesting statistic. So 32 SR-71s were built in total. 12 were lost. Um, one pilot ended up dying as a result of the, the plane crashing. Zero planes, though, were lost due to enemy combat. So the mission was, the objectives were met. Like, it was never yeah. caught. Um, it all went wrong due to, you know, issues with, the engine or stuff like that. So it was all mechanical in, in nature. Um, it still holds the fastest route by plane from New York to London at just uh, under two hours. So it was one hour and 54 minutes long. To what, that an, route. what? I thought that entire hour and 54 minutes, you're like, ah. It's wild. It's wild. <laughs> yeah, there was another one I saw that was um, Kansas City, Missouri to... New York in seven minutes. <laughs> there he is. Pretty crazy. Yeah. Um, it maintained a flight at the highest altitude ever achieved consistently by a man plane at 85,000 feet. And one fact that I promised at the very beginning that I'm going to go ahead and deliver on, and it's kind of a creepy one, is that in April of 1989, the last SR-71 to be lost in a mission actually went down. And mm -hmm. it was codenamed Ichiban. And what happened was one of the engine bearings froze, which basically caused the engine to just disintegrate and tear itself apart midair. Mm -hmm. The pilots ejected safely and they were rescued. And the Navy went to work to recover the plane from the China Sea. They did that. They did their investigation, all that good stuff. It was all done like on, on site. It was deemed too expensive and a security hazard to transport this thing back to the U.S. to have it scrapped. So they decided the best thing to do is to drop it somewhere where literally no other country could have the resources to pull it up. Whoa. So, so they dropped it in the Mariana Trench? Today, if you go down to the Mariana Trench, you might stumble on a 34-year-old SR-71 Blackbird. That's dope. That's crazy, right? Mm-hmm. Fun. So, I like that. Yeah. So that is my story. It all, you know, for me, like the Duna fell part of it just goes back to like how supersonic planes are, anyways. Like they're so crazy advanced and so crazy expensive to operate. Like I remember the Concorde was mm -hmm. one of them. It was just like the pride of British Airways, and eventually it was just like, yeah, we're done with this. Like yeah. nobody needs to go to New York. Nobody needs to go from London to New York that fast. Yeah, like we're fine. We can just take a leisurely ten-hour flight or whatever. Um, that's cool. It's interesting. I I think it's it's so fun that there's all those like secret, you know. I don't I don't know who knows. My, my dad was talking about how he was like, well, yeah, Palm Springs is where you know Eisenhower was supposed to have met the aliens, and they were like, stop doing nuclear things, and he was like, no, 
And then like that was it. I love that. And we know, know you and me know someone, I won't say their name, but some I'll tell you later. But one of the engineers we used to work with at our old job used to work at Area 51. And he told me that he would live in he lived in Las Vegas and they would drive to a parking lot and then they go on a plane with no windows to work every day. Yeah, I believe it. Yeah. I believe it. Yeah, I looked up a bunch of pictures of Area 51 too, and um it's uh it's really creepy. <laughs> it's a really creepy spot. Yeah. But, but day when they go there. But I don't think it's like alien creepy, honestly. Like researching this and seeing how secretive the government is about stuff like this, it's like, yeah, of course. Like they're gonna have to test this stuff somehow. And so yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah like that, that they're just, gonna kill each other facts. before anything else happens anyway, you know. Yeah. Humans will yeah. annihilate ourselves in before before we get to intergalactic alien anything. That's the that's the paradox. I mean, that's the thing. You look at the plane and again, write to us if you think it's cool or silly looking. But you look at a plane like that, and you're like, that's what we developed, like, started working on in, like, 1958. So what the fuck is out there now that we don't know about? Like, oh, totally. It's, like, invisible planes up here. Yeah. yeah so, so it's, like, what's more likely that it's, like, aliens that are, we're, we're seeing over Groom Lake or Lockheed Martin is, like, creating the next crazy thing? Yeah, I bet. 100%. Yeah. There's a cool Air and Space Museum in Palm Springs also that is really fun. It has a bunch nice. of old planes in it. You can go into like a World War II bomber and touch everything. It's fun. That's cool. I like it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so that's our story for today. And if you have any thoughts or want to answer our question, um, write to us, doom to fill pod at gmail.com or I have follow one, us on the socials. Yeah. All the socials at doom to fill pod. I have one listener mail. Um, Agnes, my friend Agnes listened to the Chicago fire episode and she wanted a little bit more context to totally understand like what was happening in 1871. I definitely want to like bring that back. So just to pull us out of the the plane into back to the Chicago fire real fast. Um, 1871 was the Franco Prussian war. Ulysses S. Grant was president and in London, Queen Victoria was the queen and she just had opened Royal Albert Hall in um, memory of her husband. And also the first photographs of Yellowstone were taken in 1871. Whoa. So, fun context. Fun. Other things are yeah. happening during that time. Yeah. Lots of fun stories. So Russia was known as Prussia back then? Uh, no, Prussia was more like Germany, um, yeah. that area. And then as we also learned today or Monday, um, you know, Germany started to unify in like the 1860s, unifying like around 1871. So actually, it's exactly the same time. Like Germany started to unify around the same time with the Great Chicago Fire. Wild. Maybe they're related. Wild. Maybe. Probably not. It was that? Yeah, you know, the other. Sweet. Cool. Um, well, thank you, Taylor. Thanks for hearing the story. Thanks everyone for listening, and please do rate, subscribe, do all the things and we'll join you in a week. We cool. join you in a week. Awesome. Go ahead and cut things off. And-